So if you have little kids and babies in the sanctuary and they're making noise, please know you're making me smile. It is not a problem at all. <laughs> That's right. That was Anna Claire, and she was helping her daddy pray. And that's okay. Thank you for being here this morning. We are glad to be here, and we are ready to dig into the Word this morning. We have been looking at essential traits of the church. This is our third week to be digging into essential traits of the church. You making fun of me? Sit down. We're trying to have church. Essential traits of the church, and those are the two uh, main points uh, of Scripture that we'll be in today. We will have a, a lot of Scripture today, but those are the two that if you want to turn to them, get ready for them, we will be to those very soon. We looked at two weeks ago our first foundation, our first essential trait of the, of the church uh, is the Word of God. The Word of God is what uh, separates us apart from everything else. Without the Word of God, uh, then we're just, we're just meeting, and we're just a man-made organization, uh, and, and there's nothing separating us from anything else. God's Word is what makes a difference. It is the foundation uh, for what we do. It is what we use to approve what we do. And the proclaiming of that word is why we do what we do. Uh, and then we talked about the power of four when it comes to the word of God. That if you will engage in reading and or listening God's word at least four days a week, hopefully more than that, but at least four days a week, some form, some fashion, then you will see your life transformed because God's word does not return void. So when you engage his word, it will transform you and change you and to turn you in and mold you into more of who he wants you to be if you will engage his word. That's the first trait. The second one we talked about was last week, and we asked one question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? The essential trait is evangelism, and the question is, who is Jesus to you? So the first person that has to answer that is you, and then that is the question that you and I should be asking and spreading to the world. Who is Jesus to you? And the answer to that question is, the correct answer is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And those of us that know that, that profess that, that believe that, that have faith in that and what Jesus has done, those that know Him sincerely, we must proclaim Him and proclaim that truth confidently and consistently. That was our second trait. So this week, today, we are doing two traits uh, so we're not going to waste any time. We're going to dig right in to the third and fourth trait, essential trait of the church. Okay, so the first trait today that we're looking at, you kind of have to look deep into this verse. It's, it's there, but you really, you really kind of got to peel back the layers of, of what's being talked about in this verse. To see it, you really got to look. Honestly, the English doesn't really do it justice. It just kind of leaves, uh, leaves it vague, kind of leaves it unclear. So here we go, Matthew 28, 19. If you're there with me, let's read along. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Did you catch that veiled command there? Did you dig that nugget of truth out? I know that was hard to catch right there. That was supremely hidden, a, a greatly hidden message to the church to, to make disciples, right? Make disciples. We, we know that. We know we're, that's not a big hidden mystery. That was Jesus' last command. Go and make disciples. I'm going back to heaven. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Jesus says, therefore, therefore. Y'all know I love the therefores. That's what that verse, therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore what? Well, he's just told them in the previous verse, I've been given all authority on heaven and on earth. Therefore, 
go and make disciples. In other words, I came to do God's work and I did it. I came to conquer sin and death and I did it. Right? I came to be the living son of God and I did it. I came to be the sinless sacrifice for the sinful and I did it. And I have proven that I did it. And I came back to life and I showed you to myself and hundreds of others that are named in the New Testament that I was alive. I did it. Therefore, go and make disciples. We're not going and making disciples just for the fun of it. We're doing it because Jesus has commanded us and because there is something worth following. All a disciple is is a learner. It is a learner that does what the teacher teaches. The learner obeys. It, martial arts is the thing where it's used the most probably. A disciple of some type of martial art. It doesn't do you any good just to learn about it. It's a you're learning about it in order to do it. That's the point. So that's why the word disciple is so, so good there. So we know that we're supposed to do this. We know we're supposed to make disciples. The question is, and the hard part is, and the thing that we often don't do a very good job of, the church in general, is how to make disciples. There's many ways to make disciples, but what are the basics of making disciples? Well, one, you can't make a disciple unless the gospel is presented. You can't make a disciple unless the gospel is presented. Now, that doesn't mean that someone has to, has to make a profession of faith to come be a part of our church in the beginning. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean they can't start being discipled to follow Jesus. You can follow a lot of Jesus' teachings, and that will help you. That will make you a, quote, better person that will make your life better in many ways. You can follow a lot of his teachings and obey a lot of his teachings without, quote, submitting to him, putting your faith in him wholly. But that's not the end all, be all. We don't, we don't want to just affect your life here in the world. We don't want to just affect our temporary, temporary physical life here. We want someone to be affected forever. So the ultimate discipling is someone to submit their life to Jesus, not just dabble in it. We welcome you if you're just dabbling in it. We are glad you're here. Whether you're out there listening on television, we've been averaging around on television inter- internet, we've been averaging around 120 people every week. Thank you for joining us. We're glad that you're here. If you're just dabbling in Christianity, that's great, fine, awesome. Come along. But ultimately, we want people to be evangelized. And so if there is no evangelism, there is no ultimate and true discipleship. We must be sharing what we just talked about. The two are inextricably, that means you can't take them apart. They are inextricably linked. They go hand in hand. There's not one or the other. It's both and and always for us as believers. Then continuing there in verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, talking about the how now, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. Okay? Discipleship is fully submerging someone in how to obey the teachings of Jesus. That's what baptize means, to fully submerge someone. Now, yes, we do baptize with water. We fully submerge someone with water to baptize them, to physically, publicly present that we believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, came back to life, and we are publicly identifying that. But it's not just that. That's not what Jesus meant. He did not mean go get somebody, dunk them in water, say good job, good luck, and then move on. That's not what he means. Yes, we should do that. And yes, we do do that. And yes, the water's in the baptism, uh, baptistry again today. 
Because somebody's getting baptized soon. I, can, I know it. I can feel it. We disinfected that darn thing. We knocked out the dust bunnies last week. We filled it up and washed it out, and it's ready. Somebody's getting baptized soon, and we're going to be ready when it happens. So, yes, we do baptize with water, but he's also talking about fully submerging ourselves in the complete teachings of Jesus. The start of discipleship is baptism with water, but it's not the end. It's not where we stop. It's the beginning. We then submerge that person in the life's work of following Jesus. It's a life's work for us from then on, however long we get to live, till Jesus calls us home, obeying his teachings, his, his doctrine. So that's what we're supposed to do. So then the question is, because I like to ask questions, how do we do that? How do we make disciples? We baptize them in the teachings of Jesus. We baptize them physically and submerge them in what it is to follow Jesus. But how do we do that? Okay, There's three ways, ultimately, that we have to do that, I think. Three categories, three different ways, all taking place at the same time. The first one is personal. It's personal. We must personally be seeking God in his word. As a believer, in order to disciple anyone, we must be being discipled by God's word. And therefore, we can teach others to do the same. If we're doing it, we can teach others to do the same thing. We must personally be being discipled by God through his word. Jesus says, uh, the first and greatest commandment is found in Deuteronomy 6, 5. It's also repeated in Matthew 22, and Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay? Now, as we reread that, think about you personally. Listen to how many times it talks to you personally. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You. You. It's personal. It's personal. And it's continuing. It's personal, and it's continuing. What do I mean by continuing? It, it means it keeps going. It's not a one-time event, a one-time thing. Why is that? Well, let's look at God's Word. Deuteronomy 6. Verses 10 through 11, when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, here is us, Christian, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. When we get full and happy, we forget who made us that way. And we only focus on the what, is that on the what that is making us full and happy. We forget about who actually had it. Did you catch there that, that, that God reminded them that the blessings they're about to get, they had nothing to do with? They didn't build the houses. They didn't plant the vineyards. God just given it to them. But you're going to forget it real soon. That's what he tells them. And, and any of you that have spent seven seconds in the Old Testament know that's exactly what Israel does. It's also exactly what we do. So it's a continuing discipleship. We are never done being discipled by God until we're called to glory. It never ends. Therefore, we never finish discipling others also. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. If you keep my commands... 
You remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's a continual remembrance and state of living. It's an abiding. I like that word. If you abide in my commands, some English translations say. If you keep my commands or if you abide or remain in my commands. And Jesus tells us why right there in John. Pretty awesome reason. It's not just obeying for the sake of obeying. He says, when, uh, what happens if we learn and trust and obey God's ways is that his joy will be in us and our joy will be made complete or full, which is awesome. So discipleship is personal, but it's not private. Discipleship is personal, but it's not private. Second thing is, the second way we, as a disciple, are submerged in Jesus' ways is in large group. Large group, corporate, congregational settings like this. That's why we come to church, is to be discipled. That's the point, because we're supposed to make disciples. That's what God says. Check out all these ways or, that you could find probably hundreds. I know I could find dozens and dozens of times that God is calling all his people together in a large group. But check out these three, just, just three examples. Deuteronomy 5.1, this is Moses. He summoned all Israel and said... Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. He summoned what part of Israel? All of Israel, right? Large group. Acts 2.44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. 1 Timothy 4.13, this is Paul talking to Timothy, telling him what to do, how to lead a church. Until I come, devote yourself to the, what? Public reading of Scripture to preaching and to teaching. It's not a private thing. Discipleship is personal, but it's not private. It is something to be shared. God never intended Christians to be by themselves going through this world by themselves, period, end of discussion. Any Christian that says, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, it makes me want to throw something when I hear that. It's like, well, yeah, well, I mean, I don't have to take a shower every day, but it's kind of, kind of good, kind of works out to do it. I mean, I can take one bath and still live. Or I can take a bath every day, and you'll be around me a lot better. Like, that's, it's so antithetical to what God wants us to do. God wants us to be together. Are people going to hurt you sometimes? Sure. But you can't crawl in a hole and say, well, I'll just do the Christian thing by myself. Good luck having your joy made complete in that. The assembled gathering of God's people is essential to the discipling of each individual member of the body. Each individual person needs to be discipled, but doing it together in a large group has always been part of God's plan. It's all through Scripture. All through Scripture. This is not a lone ranger faith. It's a one another faith. It's not a lone ranger faith. It's a one another faith, which brings us to our third way. Okay, first way, it's personal. Second way, excuse me, large group. Third way is small groups. Personal, large group, and small groups. What is a small group? I know some of you, when you hear that, you automatically think of something because it has to be like structured and organized, right? It has to be just that one, that, that can only be, is that, is that what he means? That, that one time we met on a Sunday night and had a small group? No. It's not what I mean. Moses talking to Israel, 
discipling them in a large group all together on how to disciple in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7 through 9. Talking to the whole group about how to disciple in a small group. Repeat them to your children. Repeat what? The things that you're supposed to learn and to obey. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk around, walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and then let them be, let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your house, of your house and your gates. Discipleship is the intentional and continual as you go about your life in the groups you have in your life. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is the intentional and continual as you go about your life in the groups you have in your life teaching of what God's ways are. That's discipleship. Now there's this huge misconception that I drank the Kool-Aid on several years ago and, and, and kind of fell into this trap that that if we're not meeting individually with someone to be discipled, then we're not being discipled. Well, that's just false. It's, it's not feasible, for one. You're in different seasons of your life. But I, I, I fell into that. I thought, man, we're, just, we're doing a terrible job of discipleship. Like, we have to have everybody meeting one-on-one all the time. That's mentoring. And it is a form of discipleship. And it's okay, and it's good. But that doesn't mean if you're not doing that, that you're not being discipled. That's just false. It's not what the Word of God says, uh, and it's not the most effective way for some people. For some people, it is. So if you're being mentored one-on-one, discipled that way, great. That's a small group. <laughs> two people. That's a group. Could be two, could be three, could be ten. But we need to be being discipled in a small group. Okay, most specifically here in those verses, Moses is talking about families, which is always God's initial unit of discipleship. But it's hard to one another, each other, if we aren't ever with one another in settings where we can one another, one another. Catch that? God tells us to do a lot of things to one another, but if we're never with each other, then it's hard to one another, one another, if we're not with each other. It doesn't work. Here's a list of of a few of the one another's. Okay? This is at least a hundred times in Scripture, the one another in New Testament is out there. And at least almost 60 times, it's talking directly as a command to do to one another. Okay? Here's a whole long list. Okay? Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Consider others to be better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir up. Provoke, stimulate one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Enjoy the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Close yourself with humility humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. Hello. Things we should not do to one another. Do not lie to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you will be destroyed by each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. 
That's a lot of one another's. You wonder why we've got to meet every week for the rest of your life? Because it takes a while to get that. It takes a while to get a couple of those down, much less the whole thing. So why do them Christians meet so much? Because we're trying to one another one another a lot. Because it works. And some things we're trying not to one another one another. How about that? Get you, come get you some. You'll enjoy it. Small groups is a part of discipleship. There's no set number, but it needs to be taking place. It needs, it must, to be fully discipled, be taking place. We need to be in small groups. Now, you can learn all those one another's. You can learn all those things personally. You can learn all those things corporately in a large group in here. And we should do both of those things. We should learn those things personally, and we should learn those things in here. But you can only do those things, obey those things in small groups. You can only do those things in small groups. We can't one another one another in a group this big. As soon as you start one anothering, you're in a small group. We have to be in small groups. Two, three, ten, whatever, etc. We must be. We live out our obedience. We act, we do in small groups. Family groups. God's big on that. Friend groups. Sunday school groups. Sunday school groups are not the time to catch up on the gossip. They are the time to disciple. Prayer groups, tons and tons and tons of small gatherings outside of the corporate gathering is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. Did you catch that? Tons and tons of small gatherings outside of this big gathering is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. It's where learning and theory become action and practice. In other words, it's you stop talking about it and you start doing it once you're in a small group one anothering each other. That's how it works. So discipleship is a command. We must be discipling and making disciples. Discipling personally through God's word, discipling corporately as a large group like we are here, and discipling in our small groups as we go about our lives, putting the one another's into practice. So first trait for today. I went through that fast. I know some of you are like, I wish you would slow down. I'm not going to. Fired up today. I told you that already. Fired up. Uh, trait number two for today. Our fourth essential trait is prayer. David Platt says that prayer is the intersection between our inability and God's ability. Prayer is or should be the intersection between our inability and God's ability. I got a challenge for you in your personal scripture time this week as you're being discipled by God's word, hopefully four or more times in the next seven days. I'm going to challenge you to see how many times there is a miraculous move by God in the book of Acts that is preceded by the earnest prayers of the believers. Not every time. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's going to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. But I want to see how many times. And look at the big monumental things that happen in the church. Because of God, through believers' prayers. Today we're going to look at one of those major movements. It's a pretty big one. It's a huge transition in the church. It's the strategic, prophetic, organized work of taking the gospel of Jesus intentionally into the Gentile, non-Jewish world. What we're about to look at, that's this when that happens. Excuse me, we'll be in Acts 13, and when we're picking up right there, Barnabas and Paul 
have been teaching the word, if you go back a couple of chapters, have been teaching the word along with a few other dudes for about a year in the town of Antioch. There's a church in Antioch, and, and Paul and Barnabas have already been there teaching for a year along with these few other fellows. And we're picking up there, chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Come on, man. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, which would be the same guy Paul, for those that don't know. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, two times in that little scripture, little section of scripture right there, they're praying. It only says it one time, but it's definitely two times because it says that they were worshiping God or ministering to God or in service to God, depending on your translation, all the same thing. They were worshiping God and fasting. If they were fasting, they were praying. I can guarantee you that. Okay? Raise your hand if you have ever fasted. Okay? You don't have to, but raise your hand. How many of you have fasted and not prayed more? Exactly. Okay? You're not going to fast and not spend more time in prayer. I can promise you because it is miserable to fast. It will force you to focus on what matters. So it says they were fasting there at the beginning and worshiping God, and the Holy Spirit showed up, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. When God's believers are together in sincere worship with Him, His Spirit will manifest in a way that it doesn't normally do just in regular life. When we're worshiping, fasting, praying, seeking Him, singing to Him, hearing His Word proclaimed, His Spirit shows up, and it tells Him to do something. It says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What is that work? It's already stated in another chapter that that work is for Paul to take the word of God to the Gentiles. In other words, without this, you and I probably wouldn't have become believers because we probably wouldn't have had the opportunity. Because prior to this, it was still just a little sect of Judaism. It was still just for Jews. Some Gentiles had been saved, not many, and they certainly weren't looking to strategically take the word of God to the Gentiles. So it's a big deal. So what did they do when the Spirit spoke to them? They prayed some more. They prayed again, and they fasted again. And then they placed their hands on them and sent them off to do the work that God had called them to. Now, how important was this prayer meeting and the obedience to the answer to those prayers? What happened because of this specific prayer meeting of the church of Antioch in chapter 13 in Acts. Well, I've already said, it started the concerted mission movement effort that eventually makes Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. After this, Paul starts on his missionary journeys, and churches are planted all over Europe, southern Europe. And eventually, not too long after that, especially historically speaking, Christianity becomes not only the dominant religion, but the, the recognized religion of the Roman Empire. Now, a lot of them had to give up their lives in order for that to happen. A lot of things had to take place in order for that to happen, but it started right here with a few guys gathered together, fasting and praying and worshiping God, and then obeying what God said to them in their prayers. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after this prayer meeting, about, there are approximately 2.3 billion people out of the 7 billion on this planet that claim to follow Christ. 
Now, it could be more than that. It definitely could be less than that because some people say they follow Jesus, but they don't. But approximately 2.3 billion people from just a few thousand at this point in time, there's a few thousand people in the entire world that know who Jesus is and that are earnestly seeking and following him when this prayer meeting happens. And there's just a handful of guys that are praying for this specific thing at this specific time at this specific prayer meeting. And now there's over 2 billion people that claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. 13 of the 29 books of the New Testament were written by Paul because of ministries launched after this prayer meeting. The letters of the New Testament, 13 of them are Paul talking to the churches that he goes and plants with this group of believers after this prayer meeting. Now, that is an awesome prayer meeting. I've never experienced a prayer meeting like that before. I've been in some good ones, just a small handful, to be honest, of prayer meetings that had power like that. But man, is it awesome. Miraculous, powerful, amazing things happen when God's church prays. Miraculous things, things you can't explain. Things that are not of us happen when God's church earnestly seeks Him in prayer. So what are we to do? Well, the students have heard me say this more times, many times, and they're probably, probably tired of hearing me say that, but we could stop just praying for a good day. That would be a good start. Like, think about it. How much of the bulk of your prayers are, God, please give me a good day. Keep me comfortable today. Please don't make it too hot today. Just give me a good day. Hope today's good and fairly comfortable. And thank you and I love you. And please make today good. Amen. Think about what you're saying, what I'm saying, and how much of it really just boils down to us asking God to make our day pretty easy going. We could stop making that the bulk of our prayers. Nothing wrong with praying for a good day. It's great. Pray for a good day. You can pray for a good day. But you can have a good day on your own. You can have a good day without God. I mean, you really can. If you think about it. So what do we need to do to have prayers like this that change the world? Well, let's pray for what can only be accomplished by God's power. Let's, let's make the bulk of our prayers things that can only be accomplished by God's power. Right? Let's not spend a whole lot of time praying about uh, changing things in the building. Right? We need, to, we need to keep the building up. We need to do things with the building. Nothing wrong with praying those things. But it shouldn't be the bulk of our prayers. We can do those things based on our budget and the effort given by the people here. God doesn't have to do anything for that to happen. Hardly anything at all. Right? We could pray for more than just people that are sick. We should pay. We should pray for people that are sick. No doubt. We should. But I've been in church my entire life, and the bulk of the prayers that I've heard in my church, any church that I've ever been in, are praying for people that are sick or praying for physical things to happen at the church. Most of it. Maybe we should start praying for things that can only be accomplished by God's power if we want to see God's power work. Things that are, that are so out of our ability that they make us uncomfortable just to mention them. Like you say it and it's so big and it's so out of your character and it's so not what you would do that even just saying it out loud kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies. It's like, I don't, I'm scared to pray that because God may actually make me do it. Those are the prayers we need to be praying. Second thing is, 
Let's pray for what will give God glory. Let's pray for what will give God glory. When you're reading through Acts this week, looking for the times that prayer went to a miraculous thing that, that God did, look at times when it says believers were added to the disciples. Every time in Acts that word added, when talking about added believers is used, it's a passive form of that verb, added, in the Greek. It's the passive form. Uh, in, in other words, it's not that the disciples added these new believers. These new believers were added to them by God. They didn't add them. God added them. It was passive. They did things, and then God added believers to his church. Because God convicts, God extends grace, God saves. He uses you, and he uses me as tools, but he gets the glory. We don't save anybody. We can share the gospel, but God's got to do the saving. God will add people to his church, not us. Let's pray for things that will give God glory. And salvation is the most glorious thing that God can ever do for anyone. It is the most unnatural thing for us to accomplish because we can't accomplish it. Let's pray for things that gives God glory. So recently, I personally completed a training on productivity, uh, life goals, life planning, things like that. There's a training that I did, exercises I had to do. It was really interesting. It really helped me focus on some things. Um, but it was th- those kind of things, right? Productivity, life goals, life vision, things like that. And the first thing that I had to do in this training was write my obituary, which was kind of weird. Um, sounds strange, if you think about that, to write your own obituary. But I promise you this, when you write your obituary, in other words, what will be said about you after you are gone, it will definitely help you focus on what matters. It will definitely help you focus on what you want to take place in your life so that what's said about you is what you want said about you after you're gone. Now, here's something else I've learned. This is a side note that I wasn't going to say, but the likelihood of there being hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people at your funeral is pretty much zilch. It's probably not going to happen. There might be about 10 people that care that I die when I die, right? So if you're worried about what other people think, don't. They're not going to be there when it counts anyway. So that was for free. But then one of the exercises that I had to do was to write down my 10-year vision and goals for my life. Personally, right, what I want to have happen in my life in 10 years. Spiritually, there's three different categories. Spiritually, what I want my life to look like in 10 years. And professionally. So this morning, I want to share with you my 10-year that I wrote down, 10-year professional vision, because obviously my professional vision is this church, because that is my profession. So here are the things that I thought that some of these literally made me uncomfortable to write down. I erased one of these numbers, wrote a smaller number, was convicted, erased it again, and put back the number that originally God put on my heart because it didn't, it didn't sit well with me to say this. So the first thing is, well, Gabriel, what are you doing, bro? You're killing me. What would you do? It's gone. Well, you'll have to listen. I put it on there. Gabe, Gabe erased it. First thing is, I want to baptize a thousand people. I want to baptize a thousand people. In 10 years, I want to baptize a thousand people. And and when I wrote that down, I thought, well, that's half a damble, so that's impossible. Um, We've averaged five baptisms a year for the 15 ish years I've been in this church, so a thousand would be a lot in 10 years. 
We baptized nobody this year. So if we're going to do that in 10 years, we better get busy baptizing people. God, are you sure you want 1,000 people? That's, uh, is it just about baptizing? Is it just about numbers? No. Every one of those people that professes faith in Christ is a soul that is saved for eternity. And that number scares me so much that it, that it makes me nervous to say that in front of people. Because one, if you, if you say it, <laughs> then people know if you got it or if you failed. It becomes real. Baptize 1,000 people. Second thing is, write a book that helps people. I have no idea how to write a book. I have no idea how to publish a book. I don't even know if I can. But I like reading, and books have helped me. And the good book has helped me the most. I thought, well, I don't know. We're dreaming here, right? This 10-year vision, big dreams. Write a book that helps people. Ordain five pastors. In the next 10 years, I want this church to ordain five pastors. In the next 10 years, I want this church to plant three other churches. In the next 10 years, I want the total congregation of this church and those church plants to reflect the community as a whole. You know exactly what I mean when I say that. We are 50% white. We are 50% Hispanic in this town. We are 100% white in this church. And I want God to change that because that will take a move of God for that to happen without a doubt. I want to build the best foster home in the state of Arkansas. We've got a problem with that in this state, in this county, really badly. And it wears on me. I don't know if that'll happen or how it'll happen or if he'll change it and do something different, but I don't know. I just thought, that seems like something huge. There's no way that I can do that unless God does it. So let's build the best foster home in the state of Arkansas. And the last one was to have a fully engaged membership of the church. Not just people that show up, but have people that show up and disciple and read the word and pray and worship with their hearts, and give of their time, energies, and monies, and all of the things that it is to be an engaged member of God's church. A fully engaged membership. In other words, 100% of the people that come to this church do that. Now, you know what I need to do? What I need to get busy doing to make any of those things happen? (laughs) Strategizing, planning, organizing. That's where my my mind goes, because that's the way I think. But that's not what I need to do. I need to get on my face and cry out to God to do something that only He can do. That's what I need to do so that He will get the glory that only He deserves. Not about me or you or this church. It's about God's church. And we want to see God do mighty things. We want to make disciples. We want to comfort the orphaned. We want to comfort the widow. We want to feed the hungry. We want to reach the unreached. We want to reach those that are far from God. But it has to be done in a way that when someone asks How did that happen? Our only answer can be, God did it. God did it. And for that to happen, we as a church have got to get on our faces and pray for the extraordinary. More than just a good day. Pray for the extraordinary. Prayer cannot be a supplemental add-on. It must be foundational and foremost in all that we do. That is, that is one of the biggest things that I have learned in this pandemic. Keith Cluthy, who likes to text me at 3 o'clock in the morning, random things, texted me the other day, what have you learned during this time? You know, he likes to answer, ask your questions that make you really uncomfortable. It's like, how are you doing through this, you know, pandemic and all this? This was about a month ago. Like, you know, trying to make it, you know, the usual small talk. Trying to make it, trying to... Uh-huh. What have you learned during this pandemic? And I thought... I have learned how essential prayer is. 
That's what I texted him back. I thought I had an answer for once, which was great for one of those questions. But that was the truth. God has impressed it upon me because I know that prayer is important. But I've prayed for a good day too much of my life. And God has showed me through these last few months that you better get to seeking me with your whole heart in your prayer life. Shook me up a little bit, I'm not going to lie. Now, many of you um, this week and especially yesterday have, have texted me or messaged me or called me or all those things that we can do now and said that you were praying for me and my family uh, for obviously for the loss of, of my grandfather, of my mother's dad. That is a great thing to pray about. And I appreciate those messages more than you know, um, more than you can express with words, because being comforted in death is only something God can do, right? That's only something God can do. And, uh, I mean, I've cried a dozen times in the last several days because I was very close with my granddad. But, (laughs) and prayer is the only thing that, that can get you to this point, God working. But honestly, my granddad was 91 years old. He was 91 years old. He lived a good life, a long life. He served God with his whole heart. He didn't get sick or suffer for very long. He's saved. What a joyful occasion. I miss him, and I will continue to miss him. But only following Jesus, only knowing that someone followed Jesus only understanding the truth of what God's Word teaches about living this life and what will happen beyond. That, can, that kind of peace and comfort can only come from God working in our lives. And you can only be remembered of those types of things when people are praying for you and reaching out to you and one-anothering you and reminding you of that truth. So as I miss him, and I'm going to cry a dozen more times over the next week, but it, as my mom said, it's almost, it's not almost, it is joyful. He's released from this broken, sinful world. <laughs> and he is in eternal glory. And I'll see him again one day. And for that, <laughs> for that I'm happy. As much as I miss him and will continue to miss him, for that I celebrate. And for that I thank you for your prayers and your comments over the last several days. I appreciate it more than you know. We're going to have a time of worship. We're going to sing a few more songs. Um, Here's your opportunity. I would say my challenge. Here's your opportunity. We're going to sing a few more songs. I hope that God stirs in you prayers that you want to give back to him today that only he can accomplish and that he will get the glory for. You can pray for those things right where you are. You can pray for those things down here. But those types of things can't be prayed for like this. Now, I'm not saying you can't, but I'm saying most of the time when God moves on my heart like that, I can't just be all casual about it. So I pray that God moves in the next few minutes before we get out of here in our prayers and in our hearts as we worship him and allow him to disciple us as we pray to him during this time. If you have a decision to make, if you want to follow Jesus, you want to join this church, or there's something you need prayer with, there'll be a couple of guys down here that will pray with you or handle those things if you have questions. But we're going to sing, and we're going to have a time of response, a time of prayer, an invitation to what God is doing for the next few minutes 
And I pray that you will join us. God, we come here today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for being discipled. We thank you that we can pray to you, that you even care that we do pray with you, that you love us uh, so much and, and desire a relationship with us, God, that you would communicate, that we would communicate with you. I, I thank you that you want those things, God. I pray that you would move in our hearts individually and corporately as a church so that we will accomplish things that only you can accomplish through us that you will get the glory for those things, God. I pray if there's someone here today that needs to get saved, that they'll get saved. If there's somebody here today that wants to get baptized, that they will get baptized. Whatever it is that you want to do today, God, I pray that you will do it over the next few minutes and beyond. And we love you and thank you for all that you will have done and are going to do, God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's make this a powerful time of worship. And like he said, if, if God's stirring you, don't, don't just sit there and hold on to the back of the pew. Come down here and, and um, let your, uh, let your uh, physical presence 